You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hell Creek, Will. Hello, David. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome, everybody, to episode 127 of the Common Descent Podcast. We're talking about the Hell Creek Formation this episode. I'm excited for this one because this is a site that I am well aware of existing, mm-hmm. but I don't actually know a lot about it. I don't know many details, so I'm I'm ready to absorb. Yeah, we've only ever done a handful of episodes about specific fossil localities, Right, we've done episodes about the Great Fossil Site and Naracourt, and not too long ago we did Maison Creek. The Hell Creek Formation is what w- certainly one of the most famous fossil localities in North America, and possibly the most famous, certainly for Mesozoic stuff, in the United States. A lot of big important finds, and a lot of big important dinosaurs, and a lot of big <laughs> important studies have been done or discovered at Hell Creek. Yeah, it's it's definitely the one I hear mentioned most often. So it's it, I like I'm sure there could be arguments about its fame compared to others, but it's the one I'm most aware of. So the Hell Creek Formation is a geologic locality in the Upper Great Plains here in the United States that is famous for preserving a latest Cretaceous ecosystem, a very rich latest Cretaceous ecosystem. So in this episode, we'll talk about what the Hell Creek Formation is, where it is, a little bit of history of study, and of course, we'll talk a bunch about the kinds of things that are found there and what makes it such an important and interesting geologic place. And of course, like all of our episodes, this topic was requested by listeners. Specifically, the subject of Hell Creek was requested by Catherine, Zabby, Jonathan, and Colin. Good requests. Thanks, everybody. Hey, speaking of saying people's names out here on the podcast... That's what we were just doing. Let's start the announcements by talking about Patreon. We have a Patreon, and there uh, listeners can support us financially, support the science communication endeavors that we do, keep the podcast going, and get extra goodies like bonus audios and extra content. We do director's notes. And one of the things you get by joining us on Patreon at a certain level is that we will thank you personally here in the introduction to the podcast. This episode, we would like to welcome new patrons Jill, Kaziah, and Margaret, Susan, and Harry. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for your contribution. Thanks for supporting us. Hey, if you, dear listener, would like to support our endeavors and get some bonus cool goodies, consider joining us on Patreon. And speaking of bonus stuff that we do on Patreon, earlier this month, yeah, this episode comes out in November, earlier in November... We did a live stream with our patrons, and we're going to do another one in December. It was so much fun, we decided to do it again. So if you are a patron, keep your eyes out for an announcement for the next patron live stream, and we hope you will see you there. And one other thing on the note of us doing special extra stuff, it's almost December, and every December we do an end-of-the-year Q&A, and we're going to do it again. Yep. (laughs) So you can find a link to the Q&A submission form in the episode description, on our social media, on our blog. Go find it, click the link, send us a question, and listen for our answer in the end of the year Q&A, which will come out at the end of the year. Yes. 
And with that, our introduction and announcements out of the way, we can move on to the first section of the episode, the news. Every episode, we like to gather some news from the world of paleontology, evolution, life sciences, etc. To give us something to talk about, keep us all up to date, Will, please start us off with some news. Don't mind if I do. My first bit of news is about giant ammonites. Ooh. Specifically, new research on a bunch of new fossils of a giant type of ammonite and insights into their evolution. This is research by Christina Ifram et al. in Plus One, and the article is by Nicoletta Laniz in Live Science. So this research is focused on an ammonite, uh, which are those extinct, often curly-shelled cephalopods, cousins of squid and octopus. Yeah, they look like nautiluses today, with the coiled shell and the squid face sticking mm-hmm. out. Except the coil went the other way, and you could very clearly see the whole spiral. And these were very big ones. This is focused on a species known as Parapuzosia sepinradensis, first showed up around 80 million years ago, and is the largest ammonite yet discovered. Cool. It was first discovered in 1895 in Germany, and the largest specimen is 1.7 meters across, just under 6 feet. Wow, that is a monstrous ammonite. Yeah, and diameter, so picture a circle for the shell. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. Whew. So this is the biggest ammonite we know of. Wow, I knew ammonites got big. I didn't know they were that big. Right? This one is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Though it was found a long time ago, we have not found many specimens of it. It was fairly rare. It was not well known for a long, long, long time, meaning we didn't quite know where it fit systematically among other ammonites. Uh, We didn't know a lot about its evolutionary history, like when it got so big, why it got so big. Recently, there have been a number of discoveries of new specimens of this group. Over a hundred new found specimens, in fact. Wow. And so this research is looking at those. These new specimens came mostly from England and Mexico, which comes up (laughs) those two locations I was going to say that's a wide spread yeah this study looked at 154 specimens some old mostly new Mm -hmm. of both this species and some closely related species and basically they did a detailed systematic to try to figure out who were they related to they also were able to look at growth series and do some major studies on the uh, anatomy and phenotypes of the various shells Most of these did not get as big as that record holder, but they still ranged, uh, some being fairly small, so like less than a foot, up to almost five feet, so 0.1 to 1.4 meters, so still getting pretty big. These all dated to the Cretaceous as well, uh, specifically the Santonian and Campanian, which are subdivisions of the Cretaceous, and they were able to fill in some of the missing info gaps for this group. First off, they were able to identify a potential ancestral species. This potential ancestor is Parapuzosia leptophila, which is a smaller related species, like it's definitely a cousin, but potentially ancestral. Not quite as big, only about three feet or a meter across. These show up about 86 to 83 million years ago, late Santonian, while Sepinradensis shows up in younger sediments, about 83 to 72 million years ago from the late Santonian into the early Campanian. And so the dates line up and 
morphologically, it seems likely to be a, a, an ancestral relation, especially because the early of Seven Red Insus start out about the same size at three feet, one meter. Oh, so this species starts out a similar size to the first species, and yep. then this species gets bigger. Exactly. Ooh. By the time they've reached the Campanian, that's when they're getting to their almost two meters uh, diameter. So they got bigger. They evolved larger sizes over time. They were also able to identify five distinct growth stages in both species. Oh, cool. Ontogenetic stages. Yeah, that, life stages mm-hmm. from baby to older. That the smaller specimens did not look like the adults. They were different shapes. Notable uh, growth phase. And this has actually uh, led the researchers to include a number of historical names used for similar specimens and wrap them up in this species. Gotcha. So this species now includes a bunch of these disparate names from other places. Yep. Because there were a bunch of different shaped shells that are actually just baby and juvenile and teenage versions of these big ones. We've talked about that before. Boy, have we. Episode 33. But they still found an unusually high concentration of adult shells, which led them to think that maybe these spots were like breeding grounds where adults were gathering hmm. and then dying Yeah. Uh, after mating, which is a thing cephalopods, many cephalopods do today. So that might be why we're seeing such high concentration. And they noted that the two localities seem to coincide in age so that Sepinradensis... Uh, uh, seems to have shown up on both sides of the Atlantic at roughly the same time. Ooh, and cool. they don't know how. They're not quite sure exactly how a seemingly uh, integrated population, because they were evolving along the same patterns and same timing, so they're not sure why they're so spread out. They're not sure if maybe the adults were better at traveling than we thought Ammonites typically were, or maybe they traveled as like pelagically as young, and that's how it got spread. But they're not quite sure why coinciding origins on both sides of the Atlantic. Interesting. I mean, if it's the same species, you'd think they must have been spreading that far somehow. Mm -hmm. And that's what they said. There has to be some way that they're interbreeding and that they're spreading, but we're not sure why we're only finding it there and not finding other locations or how they're staying contiguous. Uh, So they're not quite sure exactly what's going on with that positioning. And then the final note was trying to answer why they got so big. And this is this one is more of just hypothetical. Uh, they did not find a definite, but the timing of them getting big does coincide with when mosasaurs were getting big. Okay. So that could be a potential cause, you know, to react to those predators, but there's no actual direct evidence of mosasaur interactions with these ammonites. Right. It li- the timing may line up seemingly but that's hard to say yeah for sure i would imagine so that's more just a speculative suggestion that was presented in the paper yeah interesting findings ammonites are very cool fossil animals to begin with and it's fun what you can do with invertebrate species where you can get such a nice sample Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to study changes throughout life and changes throughout the evolution over several million years that sort of fine resolution is a really fun thing to see in a study, especially for folks like us who are so used to vertebrate studies, yeah. where you don't typically get stuff like that. Oh, well, very often a new find is an individual. Yeah, <laughs> one individual, and you may never be able to answer questions like those. Mm-hmm. 
Very nice. Well, speaking of invertebrate studies where you get to study lots of them and answer questions about their evolution over time, I got one of those. My next bit of news is about beetles across the Permian extinction. Oh. Yeah. This is research by Xinye Zhao et al. in the journal eLife, and we'll link to a press release in phys.org by Li Yuan in, from the Chinese Academy of Sciences. The end Permian mass extinction, episode 45, was a big deal. Severe ecological collapse all over the planet has been much studied in many aspects, but as we've mentioned before, one thing we don't have a very good handle on in regards to the Permian mass extinction is what insects were doing. There just isn't a lot of data on insects compared to a lot of other groups of life. This study looked specifically at beetles. In particular, they examined the beetle fossil record ranging from the early Permian to the middle Triassic, so ranging across both periods with the end Permian extinction right there in the middle. Today, of course, beetles are the most diverse and numerous group of insects, so figuring out what they were doing at this time has all sorts of potential interesting answers. This study examined the diversity of species, the variation in the morphology, so the shapes, and from there, uh, look, looking at ecology, how they were living, what they were doing, and compared with phylogenetic studies about the relationships between the beetles to try to get a grand sense of what was beetle evolution and ecology like across this time period. In all, they looked at more than 200 species of fossil beetles, because invertebrates, oof, and they found a handful of interesting trends. For one, Permian beetles were very diverse, and mostly xylophagous, wood-eating. Okay, okay. These were beetles that ate wood, so they would have been boring into tree trunks and logs and such. This is based on the physical features of the beetles, their heads, their mouth parts, their bodies, that match what we see in modern-day wood-eating beetles. And on top of that, at the same time periods where we're seeing these beetles, there are abundant trace fossils of wood-boring in Permian wood. Of boring wood. Of boring wood. So, there is plenty of evidence to suggest abundant wood-eating beetles. In fact, the authors describe that these beetles were probably dominant consumers of woody tissue, if not the dominant consumers of woody tissue at that time. That's right, so like the main group decomposing and breaking down dead wood. Yes. That's awesome. And... If that's true, these beetles would have had a major impact on the cycling of carbon and oxygen and other chemicals and nutrients throughout the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, that that's a huge job, especially in forests and, yep. like, that's major. Wow. Because trees, wood, is a, a tend to hold on to a lot of carbon and oxygen and nutrients. Breaking that down is an important step in getting it back out into the environment. And there was even some discussion in the paper about the correlation in time between when these beetles seem to become diverse and changes to atmospheric concentrations. <laughs> where nice. they, they don't make any hard line, these beetles are why the atmosphere changed. But, yeah, that increased breaking down of wood could certainly affect the amount of carbon, oxygen, etc. in the environment, including in the air. Yeah, well, because wood's tough to eat. 
Yes. So having a group that's really good at doing it is huge for everyone else. Well, and they all, another note they made in the paper is that these beetles probably had close relationships with microbes that break down wood. Yep. Like fungus and such. Now, for all of their diversity in the Permian, the wood-eating beetles seem to have experienced a major extinction at the end Permian. Bummer. That seems to coincide with the collapse of forests that is also interpreted to have happened there. Then in the early Triassic, there are few to none of these beetles before they re-diversify in the middle Triassic. A fun thing that they point out here, and we talked about this in episode 45, the absence of beetles, as they called it, the gap of wood-eating beetle fossil record, lines up with the coal gap. Oh, wow. That is a famous feature after the Permian extinction, that there's no coal for a while because there weren't peat-forming forests. So when the forests come back in the Middle Triassic is also when it seems the wood-boring beetles come back. That's intense. Yeah, so these beetles seem not only to show a dramatic uh, pattern of diversity and extinction, but one that matches with the other evidence we have of what was going on before and after the Permian extinction. Makes a lot of sense. That's pretty awesome. Like, beetles are a group that if you told me they just weathered extinctions... I'd believe it because they're beetles. It's almost even more fascinating to see a really diverse, successful, important group that then just almost goes away <laughs> to then just re-diversify once their food comes back. Yeah. And they did point out that a lot of the Permian ones were early groups of beetles. Okay, yeah. And it sounds like many of those did not come back. Yeah, so it's not that the groups are coming, but that that behavior Yes, more beetles are moving back into that niche. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, it's cool when you're a group that's just like, don't worry, we'll just diversify back into that once it's good again, because we're beetles. And another thing they point out is that modern insects today, relationship with changing environments is also understudied. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. how insects today are reacting to environmental change and climate change has not been extensively studied So this understanding how these beetles reacted to a mass extinction could also be useful for today. I mean, I don't see how I don't see where the parallel is between a massive extinction and die off of groups and things going on today. Right. But whatever. Sure. You know, just in case, (laughs) just in case there's some sort of global ecological collapse that happens. You crazy beetle scientists. You never know. You never know what might happen. (laughs) (laughs) Whoo. Well, talking about niche dynamics over time, my next bit of news is about baby giant pterosaurs and the role they may have been playing in the ecosystem. I like everything about that sentence. It's always a good one. This is research by Roy Smith et al. in Cretaceous Research, and the article is by Roy Smith and David Martill in The Conversation. So pterosaurs, we've talked about them. We sure have, episode 79, at length. They got pretty big, especially in the Cretaceous. Starting around like 100 million years ago, we started seeing those real big ones that had two to six meter wingspans. The the large to giant sized pterosaurs is what they were kept being called. (laughs) But before that, the Triassic-Jurassic pterosaurs tended to stay more moderately sized, modestly sized, you know, under two meters and often much smaller than that. Uh, these are often called the the small to medium pterosaurs in the article. 
in the fitting. paper. And these also become rare toward the end of the Cretaceous. Right. We start seeing far fewer small to medium-sized pterosaurs and more large to giant-sized. And I remember there being discussions of maybe, maybe not that having to do with birds being around. Absolutely. That's often what has been ascribed is that as birds rose into more dominant positions in the ecosystem, they started to push out the moderately-sized pterosaurs and take those niches. So all that was left for pterosaurs to be was enormous. So that pushed for an evolution in, in large size so that we saw, as it has been interpreted in many other studies, toward the mid to end Cretaceous, an increase in size of pterosaurs and a loss of small pterosaurs due to birds. Right. But there are some gaps in this hypothesis slash theory. This research was looking at this trend due to some recent finds of very, very small pterosaurs from the mid-Cretaceous of Morocco. There were hundreds of jaw specimens, jaw pieces. They looked at five toothless fragments specifically because of their especially small size. Uh, they said it was hard to estimate the overall size of the pterosaur, but maybe around a 25 centimeters, so just a little bit less than a foot wingspan. Okay. Itty tiny. Bitty. Little tiny pterosaurs. Adorable. First, they wanted to try to figure out who these pterosaurs are. You know, are what species are they? Are they tips of large pterosaurs? Are they small adult pterosaurs? Or are they baby big pterosaurs? Right. To do this, they looked at the texture externally and the internal structure with histology, where you take the thin slices. They also examined the small openings that are for sensory nerves on the outside of the bone. And what they found is that it had a as it was put, rippled fibrous texture, which is very typical of immature individuals. Okay. Still growing. And the internal structure also seemed to support that these were young individuals. God, this, this bone was still growing, not yet mature. Exactly. So they seem to be babies of what will eventually be larger pterosaurs. Based on the shapes, they seem very similar to two species that were already known from the site, the Kim Kim group. These species are Alanka saharica and Apatoramphus gyrostega. So in this research, it is functioning that these tips are juveniles of these two species. These are also fairly large. I don't, I didn't see a size estimate for these two, but these are not modest. These are larger giant when full grown. So this led to an interesting reinterpretation of what how things might have been happening in the Cretaceous. One of the reasons that the bird hypothesis of them pushing out the smaller pterosaurs made sense is because in a lot of researches, it's often assumed that baby pterosaurs, flaplings, mm -hmm. didn't play much of a role in the ecosystem, like baby birds don't play a role right. today. They were tiny and pathetic until they got big enough to be influencers. Yes, exactly. Uh, which makes sense if you are a altricial, which means you're being taken care of by your parents. Right. If you're tiny and pathetic because you can get away with it because you've got parental care. Exactly. But, and we've talked about this a number of times, a lot of research seems to support that pterosaurs were very likely precocial, meaning they were active as young and ready to take care of themselves basically from the get-go or mm -hmm. very soon after the get-go. Which means they would have been playing a role in the ecosystem. They would have been eating and feeding themselves and hunting and behaving like little pterosaurs. Which brings up one of the big glaring holes in the bird hypothesis 
If that's the case, why weren't baby pterosaurs pushed out of those niches like the small pterosaurs? Right. Which led them to the conclusion, to the hypothesis that instead of small pterosaurs being pushed out by birds, they were pushed out by the babies of big pterosaurs. Yeah. Yep. That there was niche partitioning going on between the adults and the young of these large pterosaurs filling different roles in the ecosystem. And they said, which makes pterosaurs more like crocs than birds. Yep. And it, it, even more of an apt comparison, I think, this exact same topic has come up over and over again with large theropod dinosaurs. Yep. This is exactly what a number of recent research studies have concluded about T-Rex. Yes. That there weren't medium-sized predators in environments where tyrannosaurs lived because the tyrannosaurs were the medium and large-sized predators. Exactly. And that's what they think is happening here, is that these small and medium pterosaurs were pushed out by the young of the large pterosaurs. If this is the case, mm -hmm. birds aren't the culprits, or aren't as much the culprits at least, as has often been said. Which is also supported by the fact that birds and pterosaurs coexisted for 85 million years. Right. And we talked about that in episode mm -hmm. 79, that... It, well, it's very much, it's so easy to look at a record and go, oh, birds show up, pterosaurs change, that must be related. And obviously the birds had to be out competing because they're still around. Right, because they're better. Yep. Same as how we have brought up in at least two different episodes that ichthyosaurs disappear around the same time that mosasaurs show up. Yep. And in the mosasaurs episode, episode 51, I described it as though the mosasaurs got rid of the ichthyosaurs. But then in the ichthyosaurs episode, episode 116, I described it instead as though the disappearance of the ichthyosaurs was what permitted mosasaurs yep. to show up. So yeah, it's always very difficult to correlate. Yeah. Tempting, but difficult. And we talked about that in the pterosaurs episode. That, yeah, that's not... There are re There's reason to suspect that that wasn't actually what happened. Yep. Well, I feel like it's also very easy just to assume that these two things are doing a similar thing, ergo they must be competing with each other. Right. Well, obviously, because there are no bat-sized birds in the world today. Yeah. The bats out-compete all of the bir the small birds, mm -hmm. so birds can only be big. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Just like today. Just like we see in today. <laughs> so it's it's very easy to go, well, this makes sense. And it may. Yeah, but it that, could. That doesn't mean that's what was happening. Also, just what an incredible picture that is emerging of the late Cretaceous of a time where the world is just populated by giant animals. Yep. And there are no small things. Yeah. It's just all giant animals <laughs> from baby to adults. <laughs> it's, it's alligators everywhere. Yeah, it's just it's just T-Rex <laughs> and pterosaurs. And someone being like, where are all the small ones? Like, don't worry, we'll make some. <laughs> <laughs> we'll fill this ecosystem. Yeah. It's the whole ecosystem. Give me some time. I'm going to make you some small pterosaurs and theropods. <laughs> well, speaking of exciting and sometimes controversial stuff from the Cretaceous. Oh? My last bit of news is about the snake that's not a snake. Oh. This is research about the infamous Tetrapodophus. Oh, right. The, quote, four-legged snake. This new research on this fossil is by Michael Caldwell et al. in the Journal of Systematic Paleontology, and we will link to an article in the conversation by two of the authors, Michael Caldwell and Tiago Rodriguez-Samoas. That link, by the way, will be in the blog post. There's a blog post after every episode. Go check it out. 
Tetrapodophus amplectus is the name given to a very long-bodied reptilian fossil from the early Cretaceous Crato formation of Brazil. In 2015, when it was first described and named, it was described as a snake, which was a big deal because it has four legs. It's got two little legs in the back and two little legs in the front, making it the first ever described snake with four legs. Even in the fossil record, we've never found a snake with four legs. Retained from their four-limbed ancestors, we found two-legged snakes. Yeah, I was about to say. But not with all four. And then right off the bat, this became an extremely controversial fossil. (laughs) For two main reasons. Reason number one, other scientists did not agree that it appeared to be a snake. In fact, there were some very heavy criticisms levied against the original study, as that's there are plentiful errors in here, identifying it incorrectly. And reason number two, this specimen is surrounded by just an enormous list of ethical issues in the fact that it seems to have been collected in Brazil, taken out of Brazil, entered into a private collection, Mm -hmm. and put on display in a private museum, all in violation of Brazilian law. Yeah. So, this new uh, study comes out and makes mention of all of these things. <laughs> so, we will begin with the science, the, the research on the specimen itself. Back in 2015, the study interpreted it as a snake, possibly a fossorial digging snake, possibly living as a constrictor with the, a wide gape we see in modern snakes. This new study says that all of that is wrong. <laughs> uh, and it's not the first study... To say that. And indeed, it's not the first study by these authors to say that. (laughs) Because no, no, and no. This is a more in-depth reassessment of the specimen by authors who have previously challenged these conclusions. This study identifies Tetrapodophus not as a four-legged snake, which is what its name means, but instead belonging to a group called Dolichosaurs, which are a group of aquatic lizards closely related to snakes and mosasaurs. Okay. But not snakes. For this research, the team studied the original specimen back when it was available in 2015. It is not available anymore. And the counterpart. So this is one of those specimens that is preserved between the layers of sediment where it was split open and you've got part of the specimen on one side and part of the specimen on the other of the split. They uh, examined both. And they reassessed a lot of these supposedly snake-like features, including joints in the mandible, keels on the vertebrae, and find that they are not actually snake features. Those are not there. And that there are many features that are not snake-like in the snout, the jaws, the teeth, the vertebrae, the ribs, and so on. On top of that, they don't find evidence for a lot of the stuff that was suggested in the original paper, like the wide gape of the mouth, uh, evidence for constriction or using the limbs for digging or anything. They point out that the limbs are small and very weakly jointed, but paddle-shaped. Oh. Much more sensible for swimming. Mm Mm-hmm. And that lines up with other features they observe that fit an aquatic lifestyle, like straight ribs, a flattened body, and the general long neck, body, and tail shape, which we see in a number of aquatic reptiles. All together, they say, all this seems to point at an aquatic lifestyle, a lot of features similar to Dolichosaurs, and they ran a phylogenetic analysis, which also placed them along with Dolichosaurs. They point out that this study, uh, based on their evidence, 
suggest it is certainly not a snake, but a really interesting lizard. Cool. That it is very, it is quite small, less than 20 centimeters, so less than a foot long, but with a very elongate body, almost 150 vertebrae in the torso, and then more than 100 more in the tail. Wow. Which, they note, is unlike any other legged lizards that we know of. Not Certainly not the only long lizard, and certainly not the only long lizard to swim. I mean, mosasaurs yeah. are a thing. But an unusual combination of features that, if this is in fact a delicosaur, contributes to our understanding of the diversity and even the evolution of that group. Cool. Very cool stuff. That's interesting. It. It's always weird when high, I don't weird, but it's always interesting, intriguing when a notable, famous, big deal fossil, like the only four-legged fossil snake, mm-hmm. uh, turns out to be not that, and yet still something weird and interesting. Yeah, that it's still something cool. Well, it, it's so often that we'll have a fossil, like, yeah, it's not what we thought it was, and that comes with a sense of disappointment. Yeah. Oh. But... Well, it makes me think of, uh, we talked way back in episode 49 about Archaeoraptor. Yep, yep, yep. The faked, the, the, the chimera hoax fossil that became a media sensation and then had to be retracted. I was like, yeah, that's not actually one animal. Mm-hmm. But then that ended up, the parts of Archaeoraptor ended up being identified as really fascinating, interesting new dinosaurs. Yes. One of which was Microraptor. And to me, I feel like, not to say, okay, good, we still got something cool, because that's not the mentality to have around science. Sure. But that even if you're wrong, that doesn't mean you've lost something. We haven't lost science. All data is data. It's still data. It's still a new animal that we didn't know about before. You know, it's still one that we're learning about, regardless of whether we were wrong on our first interpretation of it. So I like examples like this because I feel like it really drives home that just because a mistake might be made or that a bad identification might happen, it doesn't mean when it's undone that, like, oh, no, we're two steps backwards. No, (laughs) we still have something new. It's just not what we thought it was. Now, the other interesting part of this is that these authors are publishing this paper fully admitting, in their paper they discuss, that... Uh, They know that other scientists will not agree, not necessarily with their results, but with the fact that they published on this specimen. Oh, gotcha. There are a number of scientists on record as having said, we should not be dealing with this specimen. Mm -hmm. We just should forget about it. Due to the controversy around it. Because, number one, Brazilian law stipulates that collecting of fossils in Brazil, you have to have permits. You must, if you're not from Brazil, you have to do it in collaboration with Brazilian institutions. Fossils from Brazil have to be kept in public collections. And if it's a new species, if it's a type specimen, it has to stay in the country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, None of that seems to have happened. Doesn't sound like it. It is not currently in Brazil. It is in a private collection in Germany. And for a while, it was on loan to, I think, a private museum. And both of those things are controversial. One, because this fossil seems to have been collected moved and kept illegally yep which no one is should be happy about that that's just bad for paleontology in general but also that it's kept in a private collection 
And there is a whole discussion to be had about private collections and paleontology. But generally speaking, the problem with a private collection is that the owner can just make it inaccessible to science whenever. I remember the news exploding when it shifted into the private collection, yes. and that was the discussion. And as far as I can tell, uh, this specimen has not been available for several years. Yep. So a number of other scientists have said, I one, uh, one was quoted as saying that this fossil is dead to science. Yeah. We can't get access to it. It's embroiled in controversy. Let's just not touch it. Yep. These, uh, this paper, these authors actually address that in the paper and, and also in the conversation article. And they point out that the reason they went ahead and did this in spite of all those things is that this is a high profile fossil that has, based on their evidence, been totally misinterpreted. And they point out that there have been lots of popular articles about this, that there have been lots of other pieces of research that reference this specimen, and it it still goes around as the four-legged snake. So they state that their hope with this new study is to correct the record scientifically, that this specimen that gets talked about a whole bunch, even if a lot of scientists don't want to touch it, that this study will make a correct change and hopefully update and m more accurate if I <laughs> the general understanding of the fossil and restart the conversation about the ethics of this particular specimen. So get that conversation going because it's an important conversation to have. Well, the, this is one of those, and this is not a one-to-one -one since this mentality doesn't apply to science the same way, but it, it does feel kind of like, when there's a controversial figure, uh, I, I feel this way about uh, things like w when the Tiger King became a big deal. Mm -hmm. And what my gut reaction whenever I see horrible actions being getting lots of attention, just let's stop talking about it. Let's <laughs> stop giving them attention. Move away. St pretend like they don't exist. And that will take all the power away and all the impetus for them to up their entity. And there feels a little bit of that here where it's like if we keep making it a big deal that just makes it a bigger reason to keep it mysterious and locked away and mm -hmm. you know not to say that that should be our motivation scientifically but there yeah. I, there is a little bit of that like if we keep putting the spotlight on it when we don't actually have the ability to research it that's not great science and it's it's kind of rewarding them anyway for doing not great stuff yeah but at the same time I feel like the argument in this paper has merit. Yes, absolutely. There is misconception out there and we should talk about it and correct it and keep the discussion going about these particular issues. Yes. So, yeah. Now, I'm going to cut us off now because we could talk about this oh, for yeah. a whole episode. This is this is <laughs> a a very very deep topic. This is a big topic. <laughs> this is there's a lot to say. So, uh like I said, the link to the conversation piece will be in the blog post, and that piece has a link to the paper for those of you who want to read more into the technical details. And then the paper has references to previous, not only to previous studies, but previous popular articles. Mm -hmm. The paper itself quotes oh, interesting. scientists' comments from popular articles about the fossil. It's There's a whole history to this this creature well I, I like i do like that they did that and that they are addressing the contrary it's it's what 
we've decided to do whenever Burmese Amber comes up. We're not going to discuss this without addressing the issues. We should point out every time this is a problem. And I, I, so I like that angle to it. It's not that we shouldn't discuss this, but we should discuss it in context. Well, let's move our attention to decidedly less controversial topics in the Cretaceous. <laughs> mostly anyway. <laughs> and move on. Now that the news is out of the way to our main discussion... After the break, we will get into our big breakdown of the Hell Creek Formation, the famous North American fossil locality where there has been plenty of discussion, debate, and research into North American dinosaurs and other Mesozoic creatures. Stay tuned. There are many fossil sites and rock formations and fossil localities across North America, some more famous than others. The Hell Creek Formation is certainly one of the most famous and most well-studied. The Hell Creek Formation is a region of late Cretaceous sediments exposed in the upper Great Plains of the United States. Now, we've talked about some fossil sites before that are sort of a specific site a specific area yeah like you give a street address to it right well like the gray fossil mm-hmm. site episode 14 is a single pile of ancient sediments yes we were able to fence it in <laughs> yes <laughs> the la brea tar pits episode 67 are also a specific area and a handful of deposits mm-hmm. the hell creek formation is a formation and I don't know that we've ever actually discussed what a geologic formation is on the podcast. I don't think so. So in brief, a geologic formation is a distinct layer of rock that has a specific set of features over a specific geographic area. So a layer of rock from this place to this place, extended, covering this much acreage of land or whatever... That is different from other layers of rock based on its age or the mineral composition, the type of rock, the fossils, and so on. It's a distinct layer of rock. Sometimes a formation is relatively small. It can be pretty thin and and only cover a small area. In other cases, like Hell Creek, it can be many, many meters thick and cover many, many miles of space. The Hell Creek Formation, as I said, latest Cretaceous, very end of the Cretaceous. Mostly it's sandstones and siltstones and mudstones. There's also some coal uh, preserved among those. Oh. And the formation itself is exposed in certain places. So, as with many rock layers, they're not... The whole formation is not exposed at the surface. It's not uniformly on top. Right. There are other layers on top of it. So you get the exposure of this formation in areas where you have outcrops or in a valley such as Hell Creek Valley. Mm -hmm. Uh, More on that in a little bit. (laughs) So the Hell Creek Formation itself can be found exposed across the Upper Great Plains, all within an area known as the Williston Basin in parts of Montana, North Dakota, and South Dakota. All right. So a widely ranging geologic formation. The formation itself is famous for a number of reasons. There's lots of fossils. It has been explored for well over a hundred years. Lots of well-preserved remains of plants and vertebrates and invertebrates and microfossils. 
which makes it a good representation of its time period, the latest Cretaceous. But mainly, the Hell Creek Formation is famous for two reasons. Dinosaurs. Yep. And the end Cretaceous mass extinction. Yeah, when you get up to the in, when you bump up right to the end of the Cretaceous, you do start getting to when things get interesting. Yep, and indeed, the Hell Creek Formation in some places includes the very end of the Cretaceous. Wow, the KPG boundary is preserved on top of the Hell Creek Formation. You know, it's you know when you like read about those people who are like, I you know, I have a doctorate in this. Also, I play this sport. Also, right. I play a musical instrument. <laughs> the Hell Creek is a renaissance formation. Yes. <laughs> like, do you need to have everything? Jeez. Making it, as I've seen it uh, described, the most studied terrestrial site for the last roughly one and a half million years of the Mesozoic era. Wow. So it's kind of a big deal site. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, let's uh, go on a fun little jaunt into some scientific history. The history of the Hell Creek Formation. Hell Creek, just Hell Creek, is the name of a creek. Yeah. A stream <laughs> in Montana, which runs through a valley into Hell Creek Bay, which is part of Fort Peck Lake, which itself is part of the Missouri River. All right. Fossils from the area of Hell Creek were known for some time, uh, particularly to locals, but sort of the famous scientific history of this area really kicks off in the year 1901, a man named William T. Hornaday, who at the time was the director of the New York Zoological Society, was exploring the Valley of Hell Creek, found some bits of bone. Specifically, these were bits of Triceratops. Nice. And when he returned to New York, he showed the fossils to Henry Fairfield Osborne. Hey! Infamous New York paleontology guy. <laughs> In 1902, Osborne decided he wanted to see more fossils from that area, so he sent famed fossil hunter Barnum Brown, mm -hmm. whose name has also come up in this podcast, out to explore. In his explorations in 1902, Brown found a number of things, including more Triceratops specimens, other fossils like mussels and snails and plant remains, and in that first year of exploration, Brown discovered a partial skeleton of a large predatory dinosaur that would end up being the original Tyrannosaurus rex specimen. Kind of a big deal. So this was a this was a good place to <laughs> to go studying. <laughs> so uh, clearly, word got out. This was a time period, uh, sort of. This wasn't the early days of exploration uh, in North America for fossils. Clearly, we discussed the Bone Wars in episode fifty-eight. But it was a time where a lot of museums were really eager to have specimens to put on display. Mm -hmm. This, the earliest 1900s, is when that trend was starting. Which is, that's such a weird thing to think of. It's like when we talk about a world before grass. If I traveled back in 1900, yeah. <laughs> and I was just going to museums and be what, like... What did you have there? What are you, yeah, what are we supposed to look at? <laughs> Well, and I remember, I don't remember where I read this, but I remember reading that Marsh, Othniel Charles Marsh, famously of the Bone Wars, episode <laughs> 58, didn't like the idea. Really? I read somewhere that he was on record saying that it was a silly idea to put di dinosaur skeletons on display in museums. Now, Marsh would say that, wouldn't he? Right? <laughs> what a wrong guy. So, Brown discovered some cool fossils in this area. So, word got out. 
other museums started sending crews out to go look for more dinosaurs. It's like the gold rush. Yep, and they found some. In 1907, a few years later, Brown officially described the geology of the area. He published, he wrote up a description of what he called the Hell Creek Beds. They weren't officially, this wasn't officially designated as a formation until way later. Yeah, so it was just designating, there are multiple spots. There are some spots here. And all these will group together as the Hell Creek Beds. Yes. In the 1950s was when the Hell Creek Formation officially got its name. That's and that makes sense. Like that, you would start by just being like, "Yeah, there's a couple of good hot spots, yeah, for fossils here." And then down the line, someone takes a closer look to realize it's actually one contiguous yeah. formation. This is also in the next state. Yes, exactly. It's also <laughs> way over there. Also, whoever named the creek Hell Creek, boy, did they not know what they were setting up? Right. Yeah, good job <laughs> giving a cool name to a creek for it to be. <laughs> You know, associated it, with one of the best fossil sites ever. It's really funny how many formations, geologic formations, are named for bodies of water. Like, we talked about Mason yeah. Creek in episode 110. There's the Green River Formation, yeah. uh, very famously, because I assume they're found in places where the waterways have cut down through the sediments that and makes, exposed the rocks with the fossils. In them. That makes sense. Well, the funny thing about those names is that when I first heard about them, I assumed they were describing what the site used to be. Right. That's the Hell Creek Formation, because, man, this creek was crazy (laughs) 66 million years ago. No, no, no. Creek now. Yeah, now it's a creek. (laughs) Running on top of the fossils. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it makes me wonder. Well, that's the case with a lot of, I mean, a lot of geologic periods are named for the locality they were first described yeah like the devonian is named for devon the cambrian is named for cambra or some whatever cambra is there's the mississippian and the pennsylvanian Mm -hmm. the jurass is what the jurassic gets its name from so that's pretty common for time periods and formations it makes me wonder how many times it's happened that there has been a name like hell creek and someone went, well, we can't call it that. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is that we can't name it after the place because this is an inappropriate name. Yep. Yep. <laughs> like if there were more prudish people who named the Hell Creek Formation, would they have called it something different? Well, it makes me wonder how often it happens the other way, too, where if there was someone who goes, oh, no, we're using that name. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of the creek that's right, right over there? If that's was... absolutely what we're naming this. <laughs> A bunch of more uh, sensitive folks, and we may be calling this the Heck Creek Formation. Yep, yep. <laughs> As the years went by, uh, more and more fossil excavations happened here. More discoveries were made. We'll discuss that in depth later. Also, the area became a hot spot uh, at times, particularly sort of the middle of the 1900s, for searches for oil and coal and natural gas. This became an an important place for fossil fuels. This was also an important area. There was lots of activity here during the construction of Fort Peck Dam, which is the dam that created Fort Peck Lake Uh, on the Missouri River. Okay. All right. And then, of course, interest in the area picked up. I've seen it described as changed, and in other places I've seen it described as increased. Starting in the 1980s, after a particularly influential publication and idea was proposed called the Alvarez Hypothesis. The notion that an asteroid impact oh, yes, yes, yes. occurred at the end of the Cretaceous and caused the mass extinction that ended the Age of Dinosaurs. Once that came out, un- 
unsurprisingly, a number of scientists went, well, we'd better go back to Hell Creek. Yeah, this now now we have a, a different <laughs> thing to look for there. Yeah, that's cool. A lot of the research in Hell Creek, so when I was doing some exploring of publications and write-ups and such, it seems like a lot of the work was done has been done in Montana. That seems to be the predominant uh, area. But like I said, it is exposed in a couple other states. Yeah, Montana feels like the one I, I typically always hear about. Yeah. Just like when is new information from the Hell Creek Formation, Montana. And that's where it started. That's where Hell Creek is. Also, here's a fun fact. This is kind of a side note. In Montana, there is a famous structure called Pompeii's Pillar National Monument. Uh, Pompeii, not spelled like the town of Pompeii in Italy, but P-O-M-P-E-Y-S, Pillar. Pompeii's Pillar. It is a rock pillar, a sandstone rock pillar, that covers about two acres and stands 120 feet tall. It is notable for being the only major sandstone feature in the area, and it is a national monument because it is covered in markings and writings and petroglyphs from thousands of years of humans in the region. Cool. And one of the signatures on it is by William Clark of the Lewis and Clark <laughs> expedition. <laughs> From the early 1800s. <laughs> Pompeii's Pillar is an outcrop of the Hell Creek Formation. Really? Yeah. It's it's a chunk of sandstone that is part of the Hell Creek Formation. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, how neat is that? Man, Hell Creek just <laughs> got it all going on. Yeah, it makes, you, it makes one wonder what cool fossils are waiting to be uncovered below Clark's signature. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, when we study a geologic formation, obviously us being paleontologists, the first thing we often dive into is the fossils. Mm -hmm. But a geologic formation is defined, like I said, by the types of rocks and minerals and the composition that they're found in. And all of that makes up the clues to the depositional environment. Mm -hmm. This was one of my favorite things about geology classes and then teaching geology uh, when I was in school is that the rocks tell you about the ancient environment. And so every geologic formation is defined slightly indirectly then by what kind of ancient environment it was. Based on the geology of the Hell Creek Formation, the ancient environment of this region at this time has been reconstructed as an expansive, flat floodplain with many rivers running across it. Cool. So a generally flat area with rivers that came from the west in the early Rocky Mountains and ran and meandered and braided across the plain to the east into the western interior seaway. Oh. Which we discussed cool. in episode 71. This was, these were the, some of the last days of the Western Interior Seaway as it was shrinking uh, before finally disappearing. If you don't remember or you haven't listened to that episode, the Western Interior Seaway was an, a continental sea that cut across North America during the Cretaceous period. It's so weird to think of rivers in that area flowing east. Right? From the mountains to the sea. That's so weird. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, also, it's fun that it, like... We call it Hell Creek, and it was much more than a creek. It was a whole bunch of rivers. <laughs> so the sediments of Hell Creek, a lot of them, like I mentioned, tend to be finer-grained sediments, things like silts and muds, which were deposited on the floodplain when the rivers themselves would occasionally overflow, right? When there was just a lot of rain or it was just a wet season, the rivers would run up 
and deposit these fine sediments across the coastal plain. Throughout the Hell Creek Formation, there are lots of sandy channels representing the rivers. So we have both the rivers themselves and the plains outside the rivers. The lower parts of the Hell Creek Formation tend to have more sandy deposits, which are interpreted as coastal deposits. And sometimes there are marine sediments and fossils in and amongst those from a time where the Western Interior Seaway was broader. Yeah. And this area was the coast instead of being next to the coast. That's cool. On the other hand, toward the top of the Hell Creek Formation, we get more lignite deposits, which is a type of coal, which is evidence of a wetter time where there were lots of swamps, sort of swampy areas or marshy areas in this region. And then, of course, on top of all of that, in some areas, there is a thin layer that includes evidences like lots of iridium, shocked quartz, and other signs of a major asteroid impact. Yeah. The end Cretaceous boundary. Very cool. I didn't realize how many varied environments were were preserved in it. Uh, I, I just had always kind of seen it shown mostly as swampy uh, whenever I saw it referenced and stuff. Yeah, when you have a broad formation like this, you can get sort of evidence of how the environment's changed over time and in space. Yeah, exactly. So the microhabitats. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, makes complete sense because it's covering multiple states which have diverse environments across them. Yeah. Today. It wasn't just one giant marshland. It's just big swamp. <laughs> but I just had never really thought about it. Yeah. Uh, so that's cool. Now, as far as the dating of the Hell Creek Formation, I mentioned it's the latest Cretaceous. The top of the Hell Creek Formation is really easy to date because <laughs> it's the KPG boundary. Yep. <laughs> the 66 million years ago. The bottom, uh, I've seen a lot of discussion in various papers about trying to date when the Hell Creek Formation starts, keeping in mind that it's possibly different in different sections of the Hell Creek Formation. There have been biostratigraphy studies and magnetostratigraphy studies. Generally, it seems the base of Hell Creek is considered to be one to two million years earlier than the top of Hell Creek. I have seen, I, I think every paper I saw that cited a date set a slightly different date. I saw 1.2, I saw 1.3, I saw 1.5, I saw 1.8. <laughs> Between one and two million years, yep. the Hell Creek formation covers. So we're looking at probably 67 ish. 266 million years ago. The last million to two or two years of the Cretaceous, of the entire Mesozoic. It's it's like, the fact that it runs up to the end of the Cretaceous is impressive, but also the fact that it's just concentrated there at the end. Yeah. That it's not like the last 10 million years, you know, or 5 million years. It's, it's right there. Just a little sliver. And the fact that we have so much, that's that's such a, a narrow time, that's cool. Yeah. Now, as I said, geologic formations are often defined in part by their relationship to other formations, right? They're distinct from other formations. Underneath the Hell Creek Formation, at least in Montana, is the Fox Hills Formation, which is mostly sandstones from the Western Interior Seaway coastline. And on top of the Hell Creek Formation is the Fort Union Formation, which is Paleogene. Ah. The other side of the End Cretaceous Boundary. Makes sense. There are also other formations that are the same general time and place as Hell Creek, but not technically Hell Creek. These are equivalent formations. So it's the same. You're looking at the same time period, 
but they're different enough that they're not considered the same formation. Mm -hmm. There are actually several of these in the same chunk of North America. There's the Lance Formation in Wyoming, the Denver Formation in Colorado, the Scholard Formation in Saskatchewan up in Canada, and the Frenchman Formation in Alberta. So between all of these different formations, we have this wonderful patch of latest Cretaceous stuff to examine. Wow, that's so that's so much late Cretaceous. It's a lot. That's awesome. That's why we know so much about the late Cretaceous yeah. in North America. <laughs> well, and that's I, that's one of the things that I, I I like when we go over this stuff is because you know when you first said like it it, it dates to the latest Cretaceous, there was a part of my brain that went, oh wow, cool, like that's such a that's such a a, a notable and exciting and and right. how rare. There's so much cool stuff. That's awesome that it dates to there. But actually, it's much more the opposite of we have all these sites from the latest Cretaceous, so we know all the exciting, cool, interesting things mm-hmm. <laughs> to discuss yeah. from it because we have these amazing sites. And a lot of what we know is from Hell Creek. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of conditions in this ancient environment, uh, given that it was the late Cretaceous, this would have been a much warmer climate than today. So Hell Creek would have been a warm to temperate climate. I've seen uh, it written that it has been interpreted that it would have had a seasonal climate with a rainy season and a dry season. It's also relatively high latitude. Like that area today is pretty high latitude. So you would have had comparatively long periods of light and darkness Mm -hmm. throughout the year. So this is one of those cool ancient environments where it's a combination that we don't see today of a warm, temperate, possibly subtropical climate in a place where you had long periods of light and darkness. Yeah, where your your summer days would have been long and your winter days would have been short. Yeah. Uh, which is a, a, a very weird concept. And inhabiting this environment, the biome that we would have seen there is generally interpreted as an open, mostly as open woodlands. So not a dissimilar type of biome, but living in an environment that would have been quite different from what we see in any place today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, as for what ecosystem lived in that biome, there ha- there is more than a hundred years worth of fossil discoveries from from Hell Creek. And after a short break, we'll go through what you would have seen if you safaried through the ancient Hell Creek formation. Oh boy! Stay tuned. If you traveled back in time to the latest Cretaceous of Montana... I'd be very happy. It would be a... Re- well, for a little bit, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you I'd remember be, all your... <laughs> I'd be happy for the rest of my life. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a fair point. Uh, alternatively, you can just play Saurian. Yes. So we've talked about Saurian on the podcast before, but Saurian is a video game that recreates the Hell Creek formation. Mm-hmm. So that's another of the Hell Creek legacies, is that it is... It immortalized and recreated in the game Saurian, uh, which we've talked about before as being exciting for how much scientific research and background they've put into the game. A lot of effort to make it as true to our current knowledge as possible. Uh, but this isn't about Saurian, so I'm going to go through the ecosystem anyway. <laughs> this episode is not sponsored by Saurian. <laughs> <laughs> Other video games are available. Yes. The first thing that you would probably notice if you were plopped down in the Hell Creek Formation 
is the plants. The Hell Creek Formation today is full of fossil plants. Plant fossils from this area have included leaves, so leaf impressions, like full actual, what we call macro flora, big chunks, as well as wood, seeds, cones, and lots of pollen and spores, microscopic plant evidences. This being the late Cretaceous, the ecosystem in terms of plants was dominated by angiosperms, flowering plants since they had already taken over the world, episode 57, as well as a variety of other plants. So uh, another thing that's not too dissimilar from today, mostly flowering plants, but then with a bunch of other kinds of plants mixed in there. There are so many plant remains uh, studied at the Hell Creek Formation that I've seen in uh, numerous places write-ups of descriptions of the structure of the forest. Oh, like the layers. The layers of the forest. Oh, wow. So, like I said, mostly open woodlands. So that is to say there wouldn't have been a closed canopy. Yeah, it wouldn't have been one of those forests where you, you when you're in it, you can't see very far because of how right. thick. Or you can't see the sun. Yeah. It, you would have been able to see the sky. There would have been decent amount of space between the trees, but yeah. decent amount of trees still. Still a woodland. Yeah. The canopy I have seen described as being an evergreen canopy full of conifers, uh, such as pine or redwoods. Mixed in with those, you would have had palms and cycads and ginkgos, ferns, and a bunch of different types of early flowering plants. I've seen references to some trees and shrubs and then probably a bunch of herbaceous flowering plants as well. And then the understory would have also been full of things like club mosses and hornworts and liverworts and mosses. So you would have had this tiered structure of an evergreen forest full of all of this variety of plants. I've seen it described as a lush, subtropical to warm temperate evergreen forest. This part's for Allie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> so, that's such a, a, a weird, like, I, I don't know how to picture that because I don't have enough right? info but also I love that we have so much knowledge of the plants that paleoartists could make a really good <laughs> interpretation. Yeah. Like an accurate recreation of what the forest <laughs> would look like. That's awesome. I've also seen references in a number of places to charcoal, to, to see possibly pretty abundant charcoal remains in Hell Creek, which has been uh, pointed to by some as evidence of possibly common fires. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that this may have been a fire-prone area, which would have been part of what keeps the forest relatively open. Yeah. That fire going through is going to keep recycling uh, plant material so that you're not getting that densely packed forest. Plants, of course, are good for reconstructing the habitat, but also for understanding the details of the formation itself. So microfossils are really good for stratigraphy, for looking through all the micro-layering things through the Hell Creek Formation, exploring how it has changed from bottom to top. Pollen and spores. I, I saw one reference that said, virtually all parts of Hell Creek have abundant pollen and spore fossils. <laughs> it's just everywhere your, your allergies would have been going haywire, <laughs> no matter where you were. I saw one reference that suggested there are over 300 identified types of pollen and spores, and that's not including fungal spores and algal cysts. There's a lot of microfossils, which are really handy for study, sort of piecing out the stratigraphy, right? Mm-hmm. What is the mm-hmm. relation in time? And also for studying patterns of habitat change 
from the early Hell Creek formation to the late Hell Creek formation, patterns of evolution, and then, of course, very relevantly to this area, patterns of extinction. (laughs) So the plant fossils are really informative for studying fine details of the ancient habitat. That's so handy. And then, of course, there are animal fossils. Lots of animals. This is what makes the Hell Creek Formation, first and foremost, the most famous. And if we're talking about famous animals from the Hell Creek Formation, there is only one place to start. Dinosaurs. Woo! Hell Creek is possibly, I'm not going to get into an argument about this with a dinosaur paleontologist, but I'd put it out there for perhaps the most famous dinosaur locality in North America. Dinosaurs are extremely abundant in Hell Creek, including Ceratopsians, the horned dinosaurs, episode 87, particularly lots and lots of Triceratops. Yeah. I saw a 2011 study that found that Triceratops makes up about 40% of the large dinosaur remains in Hell Creek. Oh, wow. I thought you were saying like 40% of the Ceratopsians. No, no. Like that it's by far the most common, if not the majority. Among the large dinosaurs, not including the little ones, but among large dinosaurs. Of the chunky ones. Triceratops was almost half. That's amazing. At least of what we have preserved as fossils. That's so many Triceratopses. That's a lot. Which makes me wonder if they were like the bison or caribou. Where they were just, except that it was well, I get bison, I, I imagine, on the plains. Yes. But this is a woodland environment with just tons of ceratopsians. Yeah, would they, was that just the dominant herbivore just yep. roaming across this place? Cool. And then second dominant herbivore, based on that same study, were hadrosaurs, specifically Edmontosaurus. Nice. So these are the so-called duck-billed dinosaurs. Edmontosaurus was a large, sometimes bipedal herbivorous dinosaur. Uh, There are also smaller hadrosaurs like Hypsilophodon. Incidentally, the presence of so many Triceratops, Edmontosaurus, and other large herbivores would also have contributed to this being an open woodland instead of a dense forest. (laughs) Because when you've got big herbivores around, not only do they eat a lot and they Mm -hmm. sort of keep back the vegetation... But if a bunch of Triceratops walks through your forest, it is now a partially open forest. Well, it's, it's like <laughs> today, elephants maintain the border between the grassland and the forest because they knock trees over. Yeah. And when you have multiple herbivores that are the size of an elephant. Yep. Like, I can only imagine that a Triceratops shouldn't have that much difficulty knocking down small to medium trees. Yeah. When your face is a bulldozer. (laughs) (laughs) So this ecosystem would have been dominated by big herbivores. Also smaller ones. We have Pachycephalosaurs, including the full run of Pachycephalosaurus, Stigimoloch, and Dracorex. Yeah! Which may or may not all be the same thing. (laughs) There are Ankylosaurs of a number of species, including, not only including Ankylosaurus, so episode 69, the Ankylosaurs, the famous ankylosaur, Ankylosaurus, but the type specimen of Ankylosaurus, the originally described specimen, is from the Hell Creek Formation. Wow. And of course, there are theropods, the bipedal, mostly meat-eating dinosaurs. Any notable ones? Uh, a few. Here's here's a few you may have heard of. <laughs> there are ornithomimids, the ostrichy ones, oviraptorosaurs, the oviraptor ones, smaller to medium predators, 
including uh, remains of troodontids as well as dromaeosaurs like Acheroraptor and Dakota Raptor, and a variety of birds. And the birds of Hell Creek include both modern groups of birds, so early representatives of the modern diversity of birds, as well as lingering members of ancient groups like the Enantiornithes, uh, the so-called opposite birds. Uh, I believe there's also uh, evidence of Hesperornithes, the famous Cretaceous aquatic birds at that time. So we have a mix of old and new. Oh, and also Tyrannosaurus. Oh, right. T-Rex, episode 120. We had a whole episode about these dinosaurs. Tyrannosaurus is known very famously from uh, the Hell Creek Formation, including several famous specimens. Yeah. Uh, As I mentioned before, the type specimen, the original first described T-Rex specimen, uh, was discovered in Montana, was discovered in Montana. Also, Sue, Um, possibly the most famous dinosaur skeleton ever described. Yeah. uh, Now on display at the Field Museum, very complete, very large, was discovered in South Dakota. A chunk of the Hell Creek Formation. Stan, also a famous Tyrannosaurus, also discovered in South Dakota. The one on display at the American Museum of Natural History, specimen 5027, was discovered in Montana's Hell Creek Formation. And that one's cool because not only is it the one on display at one of the biggest dinosaur museums in the world, also that's the specimen that's on the cover of Jurassic Park. Oh, right. That's the specimen that the illustrator used to create that, the sort of the, the shadow, yep. the silhouette of the T-Rex skeleton. Yeah. Yeah. That one. Also Hell Creek. Thanks, Hell Creek. And uh, Jane, the famous, the the skeleton that has been embroiled in the controversy of Nano Tyrannus. Yeah. Which it seems more and more is probably a juvenile T-Rex. Also Hell Creek. So there are lots of famous Tyrannosaurus specimens from the Hell Creek Formation. And on top of that, there are also p- uh, potential Tyrannosaur trackways from Hell Creek. Oh. So not only is the Hell Creek Formation one of our premier places to learn about the latest Cretaceous, but also one of our premier places to learn about the most famous dinosaur of all time. Wow. And it's like I knew you know, we had a number of specimens from there. Uh, I don't know that I knew that many of the notable famous ones. Yeah. And there's more than that. I oh, only yeah. made a list of a few, but there are some, I think the, the, the Wunkel Rex was also found there. So yeah, there's been a bunch we of famous ones. Cause this isn't the Tyrannosaurus episode. <laughs> that's right. No, I right, get out of here. We're done. We we're not that. mentioning them ever in the rest of the episode. That's actually not true. They no, will come back again later. I was about to say, I would assume that's not true just because <laughs> I, we've probably talked about T-Rex enough on the podcast outside of the Tyrannosaurus episode <laughs> to fill a second Tyrannosaurus yeah, to episode. To match the time length. Uh, but moving on, from dinosaurs <laughs> another group of animals fairly well known from hell creek are mammals really yeah mesozoic mammals now the typical picture of mesozoic mammals has long been sort of a bunch of small unimportant tiny critters just crawling around and while the mammals in hell creek are mostly small they're also diverse there's a good variety of mammals there's lots of multi-tuberculates which are the extinct rodent-like mammals. There are relatives of marsupials, metatherians, and eutherians, relatives of modern-day placentals. Just a couple of famous examples. Uh, Didelphodon, who I'm pretty sure we've talked about on the podcast before. I'm almost positive. This is a a metatherian, so within the same group as marsupials, roughly opossum-sized. This is the one that made headlines in 2016 
when a study found that it had an unexpectedly powerful bite force Mm -hmm. and it interpreted it as probably being able to eat a wider variety of foods than we would have guessed, possibly even being a substantial predator of small animals. And it went around with headlines saying that this this mammal would eat baby dinosaurs. Yep. Uh, which maybe it did. It, it, it's one, That's one of those situations where could it physically probably have done that? Sure. Yeah. Did it? Did it? I mean, uh, who knows? Who knows? Well, it's there's so many things animals could do, right? <laughs> Whether they did it or not. Uh, also, something that always stands out to me when we talk about late Mesozoic mammals and have a moment where it's like it could have been a predator. Like, well, I'm sure lots of them were predators, just of like insects, right? Like, yeah, they were like shrews, exactly. Yeah, you know, eating grubs and bugs and stuff. Like, they were probably doing a lot of the same stuff that small mammals are doing today. Day. This one was a cool predator. Yeah, this one was one we care about. It ate hardcore stuff. <laughs> like like the animals that ate the bugs. Yes. <laughs> yep. Another famous mammal from the Hell Creek Formation, Purgatorius, which was a t- tree-dwelling mammal, similar probably to modern-day tree shrews and, or squirrels uh, living like that, mm-hmm. but very famously interpreted as an ancestral relative of primates. Oh. Not a primate, but on the road to primates. Cool name for an ancestor. Right? Cool. And a really cool group of animals to find the seeds of in the Hell Creek Formation, latest Cretaceous. Yeah. Moving on from dinosaurs and mammals, there's also a wide variety of fish at the Hell Creek Formation, including sharks. Ooh. Amphibians, including frogs and salamanders. Lots of turtles. I found one uh, reference that suggested well over 20 different types of turtles have been found at Hell Creek, mostly aquatic. Freshwater turtles, mm-hmm. which makes sense with what what with all the streams and such. These include the giant freshwater turtle Basilemmes. <gasps> yeah. Oh, this place just keeps getting better. <laughs> there are pterosaur remains at Hell Creek. Although, from what I've read, it seems pterosaur remains are really rare at Hell Creek. Though some of them have been identified as possibly Quetzalcoatlus. Ooh. So there were perhaps giant pterosaurs in Hell Creek. Which, I mean, makes sense. This is the right time to have big pterosaurs. And this was it. So so I, we had our giant, we had our Quetzalcoatlus and our T-Rex and their babies uh, influencing the ecosystem. Yes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> there are plenty of invertebrates, including uh, aquatic things like clams and mussels and snails. Also, lots of research has been done on insects from Hell Creek, including remains in amber, remains in sediment, and... Studies of insect traces on leaves. Oh, yeah. So there have been a number of studies looking at leaf damage left by insects over the course of the Hell Creek Formation to study the evolution of insect relationships with plants, like what they were eating, what kind of insects were there. Uh, This sticks out in my mind because one of my professors as an undergraduate, Dr. Peter Wilf, studied this. Nice. So that was the first time I had heard about it was from a guy who did these studies. Very cool. Yeah. That's that's one of those side effects of having a bunch of plant fossils that you don't necessarily consider. You can also study the things that ate the plants. Yes, the, the things that were doing stuff to plants. <laughs> but before we finish discussing the animals found among the fossils at Hell Creek, I want to take a moment to zoom in on two particular groups. Mm-hmm. There are crocs <gasps> in Hell Creek. This part's for Will. There are actually several different crocs found at Hell Creek. I found references to Brachychampsa, which is a gator cousin, mm-hmm. 
Lady Osukas slash Borealisukas, I think they're the same thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is a crocodilian, crocodiline, so croc cousin, and Thoracosuchus, which I've seen described as a gavioloid. <laughs> so we have multiple different groups of crocs, all of whom are, I've seen estimated between three and four meters. Oh, yeah. So 10 to 13 feet or so. Which is an American alligator sized. Yeah. American crocodile sized. Also, in addition to the crocs, there's Champsosaurus, which is a Charistodeer, not crocs, but croc-shaped, which also had a long, slender snout, like the gavioloids. So I saw one study of these. Note that we have multiple different snout shapes among crocs in the Hell Creek Formation. Which is what you tend to see today in areas with multiple species of crocs overlapping. Africa has broad-snouted and narrow-snouted crocs that overlap. Because if you're going to share territory with other crocs, you need to eat different stuff. Yeah. So there's a there's a croc ecosystem. <laughs> it gets even better. But more importantly, there are also squamates, lizards and snakes. For the crocs to eat. That's, well, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to get back to that. Just you wait. Uh, there are lots of lizards in Hell Creek, uh, including uh, one that comes up notably as Peleosaniwa which is a particularly large lizard that was probably living a similar lifestyle to the largest monitors today. That's what I was about to, like monitor size? Yeah. It's not quite a monitor, although I believe it's related to monitors. But yeah, Komodo dragon-esque lizard. Wow, that's that's really interesting. There's also the lizard Obamadon, <laughs> which is the lizard named after... Former President Barack Obama. Uh, I remember when Obama Don was named. I think that was in like 2011. What a silly name. <laughs> uh, it's fun. And there are snakes in the Hell Creek Formation. Although from what I could find, there has not been a lot of study specifically on snakes. Uh, one in particular uh, whose name came up, again for being a large snake, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is Cerebrophus, which I've seen estimated at one and a half to two meters so four to six feet or so which puts it on par with some of the largest snakes in north america today yep 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 so that's the size of a of a good sized pine snake yep or a good sized rattlesnake Mm -hmm. and on top of these other squamates there are mosasaur remains (gasps) in hell creek but apparently very rare that there have been i I think a a handful of teeth found uh, a while back but this year, in 2021, there was a study that identified pieces of jawbone and a vertebra from the Hell Creek Formation in North Dakota, which are not only mosasaur, but evidence of a large mosasaur. Ooh. So large on par with something like mosasaurus. So these are mosasaurs potentially at great white or orca sized, at least, yes. uh, perhaps much larger. So these, this is what's eating your crocs. <laughs> so take that. Uh, these would have probably been in the marine, right, the, the seaway next door to the Hell Creek Formation. Well, and this makes me wonder, since we have b- both the seaway and the, the freshwater, and you mentioned sharks earlier, if there are any instances or how often there would have been instances of mosasaurs or sharks coming up the waterways. Yeah, up know, into the freshwater. Up into the freshwater, you know, into the tributaries. Uh, like we see that with sharks using them as nurseries a lot of the time where the bigger predators can't come mess with them. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the distribution of shark fossils is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could easily see sharks being in the freshwater. 
I would I would think if we if mosasaurs were doing that, we'd find more of them. Yeah, that they would be if they were spending decent amounts of time there yeah, in the streams and they such. should be fossilizing. Uh, but I don't know. Yeah, could be. Uh, could be that they were just mainly sticking to the marine. Yeah, and which in, makes sense. Indeed, in the game Saurian, last I checked, I don't know if this has changed, but the way the game keeps you from just swimming out to sea is that if you go too far into the water, a mosasaur eats you. Ah, uh, that's what Spore does. If you swim oh, yeah. out, if you swim out in Spore, a big sea monster comes up and gulps you. Yeah, which gives me terrible flashbacks to Super Mario sixty four. I just I was as a kid I was terrified of that fish. That's trying to swim across the little bit of water in tiny huge island. Oh, every time I, w- I was scared. Uh, which is funny because I've played it as an adult and that fish is real easy to avoid. Well, because that's one of those where the first time it goes wrong is much scarier than the next time you deal with it. I was not ready. <laughs> Whoa. Anyway. Lots of fossil remains, lots of different, a diverse ecosystem of fossil animals at Hell Creek. But even though this area has been explored for at least, you know, going on 120 years, there are still new things being found. Like I said, that Mosasaur study was this year. So I did a quick Google Scholar search for just the last 10 years of Hell Creek mentions And I found a handful, this is clearly an incomplete list, (laughs) but just for some reference, in the last 10 years, there have been multiple new turtle species identified at Hell Creek. In 2012, a paper described a salamander named Paranecturus, which was, at least at the time, the oldest known member of the mud puppy family. (gasps) Also, Dakota Raptor, who we mentioned before, the giant dromaeosaur. So Dakota Raptor is near Utah Raptor size. Uh, Dakota Raptor, I'm pretty sure, is also th- was the first dinosaur in Saurian that you could play. Oh, nice. Was officially named and described in 2016. Oh, really? It's only five years old, the description of this animal. Didn't realize that. Yeah, because it's really popular. Yes. It, it came out and everybody really enjoyed it, so it's been <laughs> it's gone around in the paleo fan circles. Also, 2015, there was a paper describing the first fossil eggs from the Hell Creek Formation, uh, which were theropod eggs. So there's all sorts of new discoveries still being made in Hell Creek. That's really impressive. And it's, it's, I I appreciate, I appreciate you doing that because I feel like so often when it's a historically notable site, it's easy to forget that we're still working there. It's not all retroactive discoveries and collections. It's not all, you know, just reanalyzing. No, stuff's still coming out of there. New species and new information. Uh, like the first eggs. Yeah. Like that's a big ad. How, how cool is that? To the things we have from there. Awesome. Now on top of new discoveries, there's also lots of different research that gets done at Hell Creek. Again, this is an incomplete discussion, but just for some examples, there's so much there. There's such an ecosystem diversity. There's such a nice range from the lower to the upper Hell Creek formation that there have been lots of studies on various features like for example dinosaur evolution Mm -hmm. there was a study in 2015 that looked at the evolution of triceratops from the bottom to the top of the hell creek formation that study actually concluded that the two species they looked at one evolved into the other oh wow over the course of the hell creek formation there have also been studies of dinosaur ontogeny so we've talked about this a lot episode 33 and beyond with young dinosaurs you can compare with old dinosaurs. So there have been ontogenetic studies in recent years on Edmontosaurus and Pachycephalosaurus. We mentioned Tyrannosaurus and the whole Nanotyrannus discussion. 
There have also been cool studies on ecosystem structure, how things were distributed in the ecosystem. The Hell Creek Project was an effort between 1999 to 2009 that included uh, recording a dinosaur census <laughs> to compare the abundance of large dinosaurs. This is where I was referencing before that Triceratops was particularly abundant came out of this study, looking at which dinosaurs were particularly common. Also, they compared ontogeny of dinosaurs, so how common were different ages of dinosaur. And among their discoveries, they found that most of the dinosaurs in Hell Creek are small adults or sub-adults, rarely fully mature individuals. Yeah. Which is something we see in other fossil sites as well, where either the oldest individuals are living somewhere else, or they're just not surviving very long, uh, very commonly into old age. That you die young and you don't commonly make it to be a big, impressive adult. Which, I mean, that's true for most animals. Mm -hmm. like, you, you don't typically make it to adulthood if, just statistically speaking, a lot of animals die before that. So it makes sense that we're getting a bunch of them. Those studies also found that tyrannosaurs are unexpectedly abundant. So those numbers I was citing before of among large dinosaurs, Triceratops and Edmontosaurus, that one study in 2011 found that Tyrannosaurus was more common than Edmontosaurus. <laughs> that these were very unexpectedly common for large predators, which ties into conversations about if they were relying on a more wide variety of food sources, were they relying on smaller prey? That paper in particular went maybe they were scavenging more often, <laughs> tying into yet another major Tyrannosaur uh, historical discussion. Yeah, it feels like a bad place to be an Edmontosaurus. Right? <laughs> so there's all sorts of cool studies you can do on ecosystem structure and evolution with a big sample and a well-resolved uh, geologic formation. And of course, one of the major topics that is studied at Hell Creek is extinction. The End Cretaceous Mass Extinction, Episode 5, happens at the top of the Hell Creek Formation. I have seen in a number of uh, different sources the Hell Creek Formation referred to as the global standard for understanding the KPG boundary and as the most studied terrestrial resource for the last one and a half million years of the Mesozoic. Woo! This place gets a lot of attention. I'll say... There have been a lot of studies on extinction patterns across the KPG because you have the Hell Creek Formation underneath the Fort Union Formation so you can look at what was there before the boundary and what was there afterwards. These studies have been done on animals and plants. Uh, I mentioned the leaf damage studies. That has also been done on how leaf damage changes across the extinction boundary. Hell Creek has also been cited as containing... A fern spike. So this is something that I think we mentioned in episode five. Yes. That at or near the boundary, there is an unusual abundance of ferns, which has been interpreted to potentially mean that the forest was widely destroyed and easy colonizing ferns, right? Basically like weeds became very abundant. This has been referred to as disaster flora. <laughs> this is a great name. And it's a fun, which I'm sure we said when we discussed this before, but it's fun to see the opportunist dynamic in plants. Yeah, that it's not just animals that the the quick reproducing ones take over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, plants as well. 
There have also been a lot of studies at Hell Creek of the rates of extinction. So this is another thing we've talked about before. There has been this long long historical discussion about how were ecosystems doing leading up to the extinction? Was this a gradual process? Were things already in a bad place? The Hell Creek Formation has also been a center of studies like that, because you can study the couple million years leading up to the extinction. And there have also been studies on the environmental effects around this time. For example, I mentioned earlier that toward the top of the Hell Creek Formation, you get more coal deposits and more swampy uh, evidence which has been used as evidence for rising sea levels at the time, creating more flooding across this area. So you get more of this swampy, marshy stuff leading up to the end of the Cretaceous. And one more thing to note on the topic of Hell Creek Formation as a place for studying the effects of the end Cretaceous extinction and on the note of more recent discoveries still happening there. In 2019, and we talked about this on the podcast, there was a study that came out describing a site in North Dakota, part of the Hell Creek Formation, called the Tanis Site. This is the site that has been proposed to possibly record the aftermath of the asteroid impact. Yeah, like, the moments after. Right, like the d- days or so following that. The site that includes lots of fossils, fish and logs and other things, marine things and land things, in a jumbled deposit of sediment that is interpreted as a surge of water up onto land. Mixed in among those sediments are evidences of the impact itself, and the whole thing sits underneath the KPG boundary proper. Like, right underneath it. This site in 2019, when it was announced, was interpreted as potentially we are seeing a effectively tsunami or surge onto land caused by the impact. The big rock. The big rock down in the Yucatan. That we're seeing an ecosystem devastated not by the long-term impacts, but by what happened that day. (laughs) What is often, (laughs) how it's often presented in movies and TV. Yeah. (laughs) Of the rock hitting and killing everything. These would be the immediate area of that happening. Yeah. Now, uh, that paper came out just a couple years ago. There was all sorts of discussion around it. So, as usual with new studies, this is not uh, set in stone, so to speak. (laughs) But a really dramatic example of the Hell Creek Formation being used to study the effects of the end Cretaceous extinction. Uh, And I think it really drives home the fact that what we can learn from Hell Creek, it's not like... To draw a parallel to the fossil site we talk about all the time, the gray fossil site is a pond. Yeah. But that is a place. And you can learn tons from studying a pond over time. But Hell Creek is is very different in that it represents an opportunity to study lots of different microhabitats across a pretty decent span of time. Yeah. And so there's tons of different studies you can do and that have been done in this formation. Well, and you know, not only is it covering a wide area over a decent amount of time, but also at a very critical time. Mm-hmm. So like we've got, we've got a wide variety of sites that are well preserving, you know, they're preserving lots of material at a time where there's a major, one of the most major shifts in earth ecology. So it's, it's just such a 
gold mine. Yeah. Well, and and not only that, but it is a formation. And like you said before, this is because this time period is so well represented. Mm-hmm. But it's a formation that contains abundant information about some of the most famous fossil animals of all time. Yep. Like, this is not only the formation that gives us all that information we've been talking about, but also it has T-Rex in it. Yeah. Like, this is, this is, if not for this <laughs> formation, who knows what the popularity of dinosaurs would be like. Right. Like, of the most popular dinosaurs would be like today. So it's a very, it's a fascinating fossil locality uh, that is one of the cool ones that will undoubtedly continue to provide tons of information for research. That's always the the baffling thing of fossil sites like this and La Brea and even Gray. Uh, when it's like, here's all the stuff that's been found, and we still only technically scratch the surface because geology is huge. Yeah. Geological structures are just so massive that all of us will die before we're done (laughs) and the next generation can keep working on it. So I look forward to more. Now, every time the Hell Creek formation comes up in one of our newses, I'll have a little bit more of a grounding. Yeah. Some more context. Yeah. And appreciation. Well, and I hope that our listeners appreciate the Hell Creek formation a little bit more. Now, this has, as always, been a breeze by overview. So we can certainly return. And in fact, This is a fun one because I say we can return to a lot of these subjects. We've already done episodes on a lot of these subjects. Yep. Uh, Tyrannosaurs and Ceratopsians and the End Cretaceous Extinction and the Western Interior Seaway. Lots of that already exists in our archives, so you (laughs) can go check it out. But that will conclude our main discussion for this episode. However, before we wrap up, we have one more little section to get to, and that is our patron question. One of the goodies that our patrons can get by being patrons of a certain level on our Patreon is the ability to send us questions for us to answer here on the podcast. Will, what is our patron question today? Our patron question is from Jennifer, who asks, What is known, or what can be known, about ancient internal microbiomes? Do coprolites and other bromelites preserve microbial information? Is it possible to differentiate between microbial contaminants versus microbes that are part of the original systems? These are fascinating questions. Yes. So a quick refresher, microbiome. Each one of our bodies is an environment that contains an ecosystem of tiny things, bacteria and viruses and fungi and all sorts of things, parasitic and disease-causing, or a lot of them are just hanging out there. Yep, they just happen to be living there because it's a good place to be. Microbiome is the term that basically encompasses all of the little things that make their home inside a body. Yeah, you'll hear it called gut microbes or gut bacteria sometimes. Yep. Uh, to Specifically referring to stomach and intestine yep. and bowel and all that. But yeah, our, our bodies and all large animal bodies are full of ecosystems. Just riddled with critters. Now we can, to get at answering this question study ancient internal microbiomes. In fact, I found a 2015 review paper about how we study ancient internal microbiomes. Now, when we say ancient, typically we're not talking about like Cretaceous. We're talking about ancient humans Mm -hmm. uh, at archaeological sites. There have been a lot of studies looking at ancient human microbiomes. Specifically, according to the review I found, there are two top sources for information about ancient microbiomes. One, as Jennifer points out, is coprolites. Mm-hmm. 
mineralized and preserved feces, uh, which can be preserved either inside or out of a body, uh, before or after the poop has been pooped. (laughs) The other great source for microbiome information is dental calculus, basically tooth plaque. So the sort of mineralized deposits on teeth can collect uh, microbe information from our mouths. And then that's mineralized, so that preserves really well in ancient remains. There have been, apparently, studies looking for the physical signs of microbes. So, like, scanning electron microscope to find the actual shape of the bacteria and stuff. Mm -hmm. But it seems most of the time we're looking for microbiomes in these uh, ancient remains, we're doing genetic sequencing. Yeah. We are just looking at what DNA is preserved in this coprolite or in this dental plaque to get a sense of what was preserved there. And as far as determining the difference between contaminants and actual gut biome, I imagine that's generally pretty difficult on the specific level. Mm -hmm. But from what I've read, oftentimes what we'll do is compare what we find in the ancient samples to modern human biomes and to like soil microbiomes. Yeah. So that we can say, yeah, this is similar to modern humans and also distinct. Like, these these aren't just the bacteria that live in dirt. Yeah. Well, and I know that uh, in general, uh, I think Leah mentioned this when we talked to her about uh, uh, paleogenetics. Yeah, for episode 34. That, that it, in general, that is one of the big concerns is just cross-contamination with genetics. Right. Because all it takes is for one bacteria to hop in and add their DNA, and now it seems like you have information yet shouldn't and i'm sure on an individual level that's very hard to do Mm -hmm. but it sounds like a lot of the time for this kind of genetic sequencing we're looking at the whole set of what we found yeah we're not identifying each strain that was present so we can say yeah generally these types of bacteria generally these types of viruses looking at microbiomes uh, in ancient humans is really useful as has been pointed out for studying diets and how diets have changed over time. Also, our relationship with food over time uh, in relation to things like agriculture and industrialization, not to mention things like parasites and diseases. Also, I've seen reference to microbiomes being handy for interpreting contact between populations. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That if you're sh- if you're interacting with another population, right, if these Neanderthals interacted with these Homo sapiens that you should have similar microbiomes. And even in speciation. Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw, and I I have not gone into detail on this, but there was a quick reference in the review I found that pointed out that some uh, scientists have proposed that we should start including microbiomes into species descriptions, especially for modern animals, because they're so distinct for different species. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's... It's very similar to the reason that you can't typically trade diseases, you know, with another species. Like, it's why you're, you don't get sick from your dog or right. from, you know, a farm animal typically. Because the germs that make a pig sick can't really interact with us the same way mm-hmm. that they interact with the pig. So they just don't cause an illness in us. Typically, there are right. those rare examples. There are there are exceptions. Yep, where it's, diseases jump species, and they're typically very notable because of their rareness. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, your biome, your internal community, is also very specific. That's cool. A few other fun notes. 
there have also there have been studies on individual people, but there are also studies that will look at like ancient latrines. Oh yeah, because then you can do an entire population study because this is everybody's poop. <laughs> Gross. I saw one study from this year, actually twenty twenty one, that did the same thing: coprolite sequencing from archaeological sites, but in dogs <laughs> to compare to modern dogs and to humans at the time to see if there are similarities. And one more that I'll mention, this is a 2013 study that I probably wouldn't even have brought up if not for a little detail that you'll notice in just a second. This was a study that didn't look at ancient microbiomes, but studied modern microbiomes to then get a sense for the evolution of microbiomes because different groups of animals have, as we were just saying, different types of microbiomes. This was a 2013 study that did a comprehensive analysis of the gut microbiome of American alligators. Hey! (laughs) And they described what was in there and how it differs in different sections of the gut and pointed out that there were a bunch of differences from other reptiles and mammals and birds. And they point out that these kinds of studies could give us insights into archosaur microbiomes through their evolutionary history. So even if we can't get T-Rex microbiomes, we might be able to take some educated guesses about them based on modern day things like gators and birds. Yeah, well, and it's microbiomes are so fascinating just in general. Uh, they This is not actually a one to one comparison, but I, I am fascinated about them by them in a very similar way that I am to like epigenetics. Yeah. To where it's, this, it's this ridiculously complex aspect of an organism that affects huge portions of how they interact with their environment like if you lose your gut your 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 gut microbes that affects what you can and can't eat yeah that's a big deal for the rest of your life potentially like you may not be able to eat certain things ever again because you can no longer digest it that's just not an option for you anymore and so Knowing, you know, I don't know all the details, but like the difference between different groups, like an alligator eats things in a very different way to typical mammals. Yeah. And so their guts, microbes have got to be doing something different. And it makes sense that T-Rex would have a distinct one. I also really liked the note of comparing populations. Yeah. Uh, Because I've heard that that's true in individuals today that like you and your family or you and your roommate will tend to have more similar microbiomes as they're crossing well and and also i know there have been studies in modern people of the differences in microbiomes between industrialized and non-industrialized communities yep yep yep. so yeah well this is exciting because microbiome studies feel like they're relatively recent Mm -hmm. uh, even in modern times so i assume there will be all sorts of expansion in the future for ancient microbiomes as well yeah Cool question, Jennifer. Thanks for asking. Oh, yeah. No, that's a a good prompt for a cool topic. Yeah. Thanks to all of our patrons. Thanks to all of our listeners. Thanks to everyone who requested this episode topic. And thanks to you, yeah, you, for listening to this episode. I assume you listened all the way to the end and you didn't just skip to the end. Uh, If you didn't, then you don't get your thank you. No, you missed out. Mm -mm. If there are more topics that we haven't already done in episodes that you'd like to hear us talk about, As always, we are open to suggestion. You can reach out to us on the social medias and stuff. Hey, also, check out the blog post after this episode for links and images and stuff to expand upon your understanding of this episode's topic. Also find the news links in there. As a reminder, 
when this episode comes out, our end of the year Q&A submission form will still be open. So if you haven't already sent us your question for the end of the year Q&A, go ahead and do that. You'll find the link in the episode description, as well as on our blog and on our social media. End of the year's coming up pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Only a couple episodes left before 2022. Those episodes, as with all of our episodes, will be released on a fortnightly basis. So stay tuned in two weeks for more discussions. And until then, uh, I don't know, learn about other stuff. Yeah. Listen to our other episodes. I was going to say listen to cool podcasts, but listen to our podcast. Yeah, uh, listen to cool podcasts, a.k.a. the Common Descent Podcast. We've got like 200 hours of content out there. Listen to that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for all your trips that are going to be as everyone's driving around for the holidays. Oh, yeah. There you go. Oh, that yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. So you're welcome. I mean, I I won't be doing that. (laughs) No. I've already heard every episode of this podcast. (laughs) And I'll be driving, but I'm not, I'm going to be listening to Christmas music. I'm not going to listen to this podcast. I'll listen to better podcasts than this. (laughs) I I listen to David enough. (laughs) (laughs) No, he doesn't. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.